yeah, we like when we buy this brand new huge 72-inch TV and we take it out of its box and it smells good. It smells brand new and, and we put it on our wall and we think that's awesome until it starts burning. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and opinions expressed are those of your host and the guest. Speaking of which, today's guest is a man by the name of Jeff Zintek. He is recently retired from the Phoenix Fire Department, a hazmat guru and um, all-around great guy. We talk about uh, the roles and responsibilities of a company officer, how you build trust in your crew. And then we talked about the Hazmat uh, Response Guide, uh, a book that he put together. It's in its second edition, a great adjunct for you in your pocket as you are responding to uh, all kinds of calls, hazardous materials in particular. You'll enjoy this episode. Tune in right now and enjoy. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and have this conversation and talk about Hazmat, talk about uh, your fog book that you have put out. And um, but before we dig into some of that stuff, I want to talk about about you. So I know you recently retired, which is uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the smile on your face tells me how, how much you are enjoying retirement. So getting into that, how long were you on the job? Well, first of all, th- thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. But um, uh, I spent 33 years with the fire department, and uh, you know, I was a—it's any—it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. So I put all my eggs basically in one basket. I—I I kept telling myself, well, "What happens if I don't become a fireman?" But luckily, I did. Um, but I had a, a great career. Um, you know, 20 years on the trucks, uh, frontline trucks, being at the busy stations. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then I had the option of going to, um, you know, the special ops program, which kind of, I got in early and that's where my heart lies with special operations. And I, I really loved it. And then I got uh, involved with this, uh, 957 special operations, uh, car and, uh, had a blast with that and went from there. The rest was history. Yeah. The rest was history. What? So did you grow up in the Phoenix area? I did. Um, yeah. basically, uh, you know, uh, Glendale area, uh-huh. Okay. Went to Moon Valley High School. Yeah. What put you down the, the fire path? I didn't figure it out. I mean, for me, personally, like, I didn't figure it out until well after I was, you know, out of the Marine Corps, you know, midway through my 20s, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is a career field? Well, I could I could actually pinpoint it to two significant things that happened. Um, I remember one time I was a kid, I was out, out in the front yard playing football with my friends, and uh, our neighbor comes out of a backyard holding her son in her hands, hmm. uh, he drowned in the pool. Um, 33 came by, and I watched those guys um, try to revive that little boy, which he uh, unfortunately he passed away, and I was just impressed, uh, just blown away by their professionalism. And then um, I do remember, uh, and I don't know if it was after this or before this, but I remember watching a big fire on TV. Um, I looked at my... My mom and I said, "That's what I want to do." And she looked at me and she goes, "No, you don't." And I said, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> how, old and, was, uh, how old were you? You know, I don't really remember. I'm I'm going to say I was probably you know ten or eleven. Interesting. And, uh, and I just remember seeing that, and it's just the only thing I ever want to do. And uh, it, you know, when they say you know it's uh, you've had your dream career, I can honestly say that's it's what I set out to do, and I did it, and it was a blast every single day. Nice. So how soon after high school did you fulfill your dream? Well, I uh, I started testing right away. It took me three times, and I got on when I was 22. And it was funny because the last 
test I took, I also picked up the Phoenix PD book because <laughs> I was like, I need to do something. I felt like I need to get on with my life yeah. you know, at 22. Well, you know, isn't it funny now that you, you know, now that you're at the end of your career, you look back, you're like, yeah, settle down, dude. Like yeah. you realize you have way more time than you realize and when you're 20, you, you think the world is coming to a close. Exactly. But I was getting restless. I wanted to, I wanted right. to be, be in a career. I didn't want to be a police officer. I mean, but I thought, eh, it's close enough. Thankfully I got hired by the fire department. Right. <laughs> so I passed on the police test. Right. Right. Oh yeah. man. So what are some of the, what are, what are one of the things that, um, I mean, as long as I've known you, you've been a captain, right? But mm-hmm. what are some of the highlight moments when you, you know, as a firefighter, what are some of the things that you take away from being like a backseat firefighter that just have, that sort of shaped your career? Uh, that's a really good question. And I, I think, I think just the fact that I loved being in the backseat, I wasn't really happy when I took the the captain's test in 1999 I would I had 11 years or 12 years in the back seat and I just really enjoyed it but I felt like I I didn't want to retire as a as a line fireman not that there's anything wrong with that at all because we need those guys and those guys are important um but I just felt like I needed to push myself and I felt like I had some skills and I felt like I had some leadership qualities um I used to watch people I used to watch the captains I worked for and study them like Dick, Tim Kenobi and Dave Kenobi, two of my mentors. And I would watch them and love the way they led. And I just wanted to do that. So reluctantly, I asked a, another firefighter that was, I worked around if he was interested in taking the test with me. And he reluctantly agreed as well. We, we actually both got, got hired, uh, got uh, promoted this around the same time. But I really think that uh, the fact that I spent a lot of time in the back seat in busy areas, I was proud of pretty much how I handled myself on fires. I loved loved going to fires. I loved being in the mix on really interesting calls. I felt like I I was never a paramedic, but I did feel like I did a great job of uh, you know working with the paramedics. I felt I was a good employee, you're, you're too. You were a good uh, emergency medic tender. Yeah, I, I wanted to stay away from medic tender. That was our that was our title back then. I wanted to stay away from that. Because I think, you know, we worked together. But um, And I also felt like no, I was... Well, a, let me just say this. To be clear, at, having been a paramedic for m- most of my career, the uh, there is nothing more important than your BLS counterpart uh, when it comes to getting work done. Like When you have a, a legit emergency call... Hands down, the EMT makes the call go. I, I can kind of agree with that. I mean, I think we we bring a lot to the table. Uh, I think it's a good mix, and uh, I was fortunate enough to work with some very good medic partners. Um, so, you know, when you work with a good medic partner and you want to make him look good and you want to look good, and um, I think that's kind of some of the keys with being enjoying your job and being a good firefighter is um, – working and meshing with your crew. And I was going to mention too, that I always felt like I was a good firefighter in terms of listening to my captain. Um, you know, I always, I always trusted everybody I worked for. And when they, when they asked me to do something, I was, I was ready to do it. I was willing to do it um, because I trusted them so much. And that's really what I was looking for when I became a captain is I wanted them to trust me to make, decisions in really critical times. Um, I used to tell my guys that, hey, you know, when we're doing small stuff like going to get some chow or where we're going to eat or something like that, it's a decision between all of us. I said, but there's going to be a time when I'm going to need to make a decision 
because it's it's critical, and you guys just have gonna have to do it. You have to trust me. And I think I, I think I pretty much yeah. rolled with that, and I think it worked out well. Yeah, I I think I agree with you totally. Trust is a very very important part of a functional fire company or any high risk group work group. Right, the trust has to be present. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a follow up question though. So how do you how does one build trust in a fire company? Uh, I think there's probably a bunch of different ways. I think what worked best for me is just showing the guys that, um, uh, you know, I, I, I came from the same place and I rode up through the ranks and I'm not, I'm willing to clean the bathrooms. I'm willing to, um, be a medic tender as a captain. I'm willing to do the same job because we're all there to, to put this puzzle together. Um, I never really was a fan of just sitting back and pointing I actually wanted to get in. So I think the fact that I, uh, I, I still worked, you know, yeah. I still loved being on the fire truck just because I was in the right front seat. Doesn't mean I can just sit back and let them do everything. It's like we work together as a team. So, so I think the fact that they saw that I'm willing to get my hands dirty, um, that I made sound judgment. Um, I think that that built the trust in them and, uh, and sticking up for guys. I had a couple times where I went to nose to nose with, People above me, people beside me, uh, sticking up for my crews, and uh, you know, I think that shows a lot because I believed in what they did. Right. And uh, and if I believe they were right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for them. Yeah. There's a you know we pay a lot of lip service to the idea that do you have my six? Do I you know, do I have yours, etc. But actually executing that is important mm-hmm. and demonstrating that. I think one of the, I try to tell guys all the time like my job is to remove roadblocks. And do you know uh, be a shit shield for you, mm-hmm. right? To give you the latitude to do your job. Well, and if that's going to be the case, what are you going to do for me, right? You're going to do your job, exactly. But, you know, so that's so I you know, hope. So I talk when I talk about trust, like that's the the environment has to be ripe for that. You have to create that environment where you know I'm showing you that I really care, right? I actually care about you, and I will defend you. But don't you know? Don't put me in a position that I can't. Exactly. Right. So exactly. That, and and you know, I I worked for you for uh, for a while, in, um, mainly in an administration role, mm-hmm. but you can still build that trust. And I felt like we had that, and that, that worked out really well for me. You know, I, I I knew my job. I just needed somebody to say, keep me informed, but go ahead and do it. And you know, we worked out. We worked well together. Yeah, and I, I think, think we, so. I think we did a good job, and we. I think we both trusted each other. I think that's the that's the key, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, I think for you know that in that administrative role, which is funny because it's the there wasn't a, the when we weren't working hand in hand in the fields, right? So me being able to hey, watch me, I'm going to clean the shitters, and you, we trust me now. I couldn't <laughs> yeah. do that, right? Because yeah. we wouldn't have that kind of exactly. we weren't in that kind of role, right? So in that at that level in the game, it was about physically listening, right? You know, soliciting. You know, I guess let me be clear what we were talking about here. So you were in your 957 role, which is a special operations, I like to call them gurus, mm-hmm. um, but the special operation leads in the field and providing uh, operational support and safety oversight, et cetera, and special operations expertise, you know, added expertise. And my role was as a uh, division chief providing support to training and to the 957s. And so... While I was, quote, your boss, uh, you know, your administrative boss, you had operational bosses as well. But so I, so in that role, when we start talking about the, you know, the relationship of trust, it's if you have a need, 
in the field or if you have a need for support, resources, et cetera, my job is to advocate and fight for that to help you be operationally ready and to have the tools and equipment that you need to be successful. Right. And so. Right. There's not a better feeling as a, as a, as an employee when your boss just wants to know, give me an update what's going on and you give them the update and they say, great, carry on. Right. Um, and that, and I went through a lot of bosses through, through there and uh, there was a lot that, work that way and it just makes you feel like um they trust you um you know that you you can go off and do your own thing and and really i mean we do you know we we worked there for a long time and we did know what we we're doing but they do deserve to be updated on what's going on and maybe make some changes now and then and that never really bothered me because they might know another piece of it um but but to be allowed to just keep moving on and doing what you know how to do, it, that's a, that's a lot, and it builds that trust. And it's you know it's the same for the guys in the field. You know when you watch your guys, and you know on a fire that they're doing well. They they're they're smart, good firefighters. All you have to do, you don't have to tell them where to put the hose line. You don't have to tell them get down low. Anything like that they know all that stuff. You're just watching. You're just being the the overall person that's involved there. But they know what they're doing. Yeah. And that again, leadership is. It's it's a little bit hands off, um, but it's just it's it's being really uh, you know trustful trustworthy. I think it's interesting too. So some of that is built by uh, the expression I think is transactive memory, right? So when we go on, we run some calls, we do some work, and suddenly I go, oh, I've seen a repeated behavior from you that I like, and that and now I'm beginning to build. Uh, a trust in you. I can let the leash out a little further, a little further. And pretty soon I can take the lease off because I don't even have to worry about you. I know you understand my intent as a leader and you're going to execute inside that boundary. Cause I know we have a, we have an understanding of what's going to take place. And, and I think the fact that they, they are happy that we trust them. They're not going to do anything to jeopardize us as a supervisor. In right. other words, do anything that's going to get us in trouble. So it's there's a you know you have to trust in them a lot as well and uh, and they know when they're going to get somebody in trouble and they may want to hang back and and uh, they're say hey I don't want to do that to them and right. that's important as well because that you know that could happen yeah the relationship piece is really important and the investment in one another is huge and mm. putting in some time right even if it's hooping or doing recreational activities or, you know, those type of things are, are you know, getting out and, and PTing together, training together, cooking together. Those are all opportunities to build the relationship, which is where the trust is developed and, and fostered and, and really Absolutely. honed. Well, so, and this is a career that uh, is unlike any other career. I mean, it's, you spend, spending 24 hours with these people and knowing their families and getting to know their personal life and, uh, going into very, very dangerous situations. Everybody wants to stay safe. And, right. Um, so there has to be more than just that uh, employee-supervisor relationship. It has to go a little bit deeper and further than that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's one of the things that is kind of discouraging uh, a little bit in the modern fire service. And not to go too deep in this hole, but it just you hear people, you know, it's it's harder now to have the those those kind of fun personal relationships because it is a workplace and finding, you know, there are boundaries that you have to maintain. Um, and man, it's, that can pose a real challenge in our modern environment. 
Absolutely. Uh, the modern environment is very different than it was back in the days. Yeah. Um, even back before I got on. Um, not saying it's bad, not saying it's good. It, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but I think we can kind of overcome that stuff um, and, and still have that good relationship yeah. and, uh, and make it fun because yeah. it, it is. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to anybody. I had fun at work. And people, my wife used to say, how could you have fun going to disasters? And it's like, yeah, I don't know. That, that doesn't mix well together, but it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, that's, I'm laughing over here as you say that because I think about the the uh, enjoyment that you get from dealing with other people's travesties. It's shameful. It is. <laughs> you Nobody understands that. You should be ashamed, I, Jeff. Yeah. Well, when we're out to dinner with people who don't know anything about the fire service and I say something that comes out of my mouth and they look at me with these really weird eyes, she goes, he was a fireman or he was a fireman. Yeah, so right, forgive right. him. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped telling stories at family parties because- the question is always, you know, something along the lines of, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? And I'm like, so I told, you know, early in my career, I'd start telling, I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw this and I saw that. And and their faces would turn green and they would be horrified. And I'm like, wait, you don't like that story? <laughs> I got one that's worse. <laughs> yeah. My crew thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> so I started telling, I'm like, well, you know, this one time this guy called us because he thought he was going to pass out and. He woke up in his bad dream. Yeah. <laughs> they told him to go back to bed. <laughs> They're like, no. I'm like, yeah, right? I can't believe that guy called. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Like, Man, like, the horror. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think that part of it is the community that we're surrounded with, right? The, the, the community that we have inside the fire service, uh, we get one another and that's an important part of it. You know, but, well, let me ask you this. After 33 years in the fire service, do you feel like there's a... Anything that's kind of been a burden to you? Um, you mean that I've transferred over from? No, it just carried with you. It's carried. kind of. You know, uh, it's funny. I was on the phone earlier with somebody. We were talking about PTSD and in the fire service now, and uh, and I said, you know, I've been pretty lucky. I haven't I haven't carried anything over on that. I, uh, you know, I I, I think uh, when I got into this job, I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew it was going to be. There was going to be times where I wouldn't sleep at night and seeing bad things. Fortunately, I haven't carried any of that stuff over. Um, I, you know, who knows about the effects of me, you know, not having the proper sleep or the toxins I've inhaled over right. the years. Because I, many times, not that this is good, and I advocate this all the time to wear in your SCBA, but a lot of times we didn't wear it on some of the calls that we do now. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I got to say that the most mostly good things that came of it. A lot of good memories, yeah. a lot of good skills I've, I've, uh, I've come across with, um, a lot of good friends, uh, no burdens. I, I really don't feel like I've, 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 har I've harbored any. Yeah. Fortunate like, maybe. I don't know. No, that's great. It's interesting though. I, I think every one of us is equipped. We're all built differently, right? Mm -hmm. We come, you know, we come into this earth from wherever and we're wired differently and that's just the way we are. And mm -hmm. so some of us are more prone to it than others. And Absolutely. it's funny because I was going years and years and years without any, don't think about it at all. I'm like, man, I'm good at this. Like, I don't have, it doesn't affect me at all. And I'm hard as woodpecker lips, you know, like I got this. And I was driving across the city of Phoenix one day and I just was 
ruminating. I'm like, oh, I saw a trauma here. I had a house fire there, you know, apartment fire over here. And then all, and I, and all of a sudden my eyes welled up with tears. And I'm like, what in the hell? Where'd that come from? (laughs) It was just a sudden, um, a, overwhelming of emotion, emotion right? right and yeah. it's interesting because I, I brought that up to my wife and she goes go to therapy i don't think i need therapy and she goes why not i'm like i don't know <laughs> i think i'm okay I i'm think, not supposed to need therapy. yeah i right? think i'm good no, right like I, I just didn't. i'm good and um and so i still haven't gone to therapy but however i am considering it just for the sake of Me- mental flossing right? right like maybe i should go and just floss my mind out a little bit and go get my soul right. you know Peel back some of the layers of uh, of insult and right. see what's there. I don't know. Well, it's it's funny you say that because my wife would tell me a lot of times that I'm just really hor- cold and callous. <laughs> and I said, well, I had to be, you know, over the years because right. you can't get emotionally involved in what happens, or at least you try not to. Right. So I have a tendency to uh, very be be very strict about stuff. You know, when when we talk about. Um, you know, stuff that goes on in the family or something around that. And I'm just like, hey, you know, just this is what we do. And she's like, how could you be so cold and bold about it? It's like, because <laughs> I'm a fixer. <laughs> right. right. You know, I'm I, not emotionally I, involved in any of this. <laughs> yeah. I just, I want to fix the problem. I don't want to dwell on it. And this is how you can get by that. So yeah. I guess if I did take a burden, it'd be maybe I'm just uh, very cold and callous about things. I look at things, you know, kind of black and white and, you know, um, you know, we can either choose to solve this or we can just lament on it. So, right. Yeah. No, it's, that's good. That's, I think we all have different coping mechanisms mm-hmm. and, um, it's important that whatever it is that every individual needs to figure out how they're going to process it. Cause it either, it rolls off your back, like a duck off, you know, water off a duck's back kind of thing. It rolls off you or, uh, or it doesn't. And you need to know who you are and how you're going to manage it. Right. And then deal with right. it. Right. Whatever. Sometimes we don't even know until something really triggers you. Like yeah. what's happened to you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's kind of weird. I yeah. don't know. You know. Yeah. And it hasn't happened since. Thank heavens. Knock on wood. <laughs> right. I think, I think I'm okay. So, um, you know, and that's, I think it's uh, the important thing. I think, you know, to anybody who is thinking about this or processing it or whatever, uh, you know, Go talk to somebody. Yeah. Talk it out. You know? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that's kept me really healthy over the years really is my crew, right? Being able to turn to the guys and go, hey, man, like, that was pretty shitty, huh? Yeah. That mm-hmm. was horrible. Yeah. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Like, we all agree that was horrible. You know, let's go watch some TV. Let's go hang out together. Let's go lift some weights, whatever. But being able to decompress a little bit and know that you're not alone in, in yeah, seeing I, this stuff. I really think the fire department has done a really good job of, of the, with the pu- – the peer, oh, fire strong, the fire peer, strong, the peer, 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 peer stuff. Peer, yeah. And, yeah. uh, guys stepping up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. You look at all the people that are willing to step up and talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, I think the last time I looked, there was, I don't know, it was like 30 or 35 people on there. I, I mean, I don't quote me on those numbers, but right. I thought, wow, that's, that's awesome for those people because they've probably been through the same thing Yeah, and they want to share their experiences. And that takes a lot for somebody to do that. And, um, uh, I think that's, you know, where we're going and it's good to talk to somebody that knows what you're talking about, knows have been around there and they, they go, well, yeah, you know, and they can kind of, you can kind of talk it through and, and know that other people are experiencing it as well. So I think their, uh, the fire department's going in a good direction on that. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's important to, uh, take care of your, your health, emotional, physical, and otherwise. Right. So, well, it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous job in more ways than just. 
right. the physical dangers. We right. See. Exactly. So, so yeah. Well, so speaking of speaking of which, you know, as we were talking about this, I started thinking of like, I'm like, well, what stuff has Jeff been exposed to? And and you went back to um, help out after 9/11, huh? Mm-hmm. I did. So that's I mean, you talk about exposure. Are you doing anything kind of prophylactically with regard to that exposure? Yeah, actually, the World Trade Center uh, has a program going on that I've been a part of for. I don't know, maybe the last 10 years. I get a physical every year by them, uh, blood work, uh, pretty comprehensive um, program. I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. Uh, they're very nice. They're, they're responsive. And so I've been, I've been through a lot of testing through them, they're, and they're willing to be there, um, you know, if anything pops up. Uh, so, so, yeah, uh, it's actually a good thing. Yeah, uh, I don't know if everyone's involved with it, but I don't think it's ever too late to get involved with it. And they even take people who are, were not fire service people and who oh. helped in any other ways. No, good. So I'll, I'll stick with that, and that's a yeah. It's obviously a good what, thing to have. Yeah. How long were you on FEMA before you had that deployment? Uh, that I was a member for probably uh, six years because I actually missed the first deployment. Uh, and the only reason was because my son was born, um, which was Northridge, which was oh, okay. one of the first ones we the went earthquake. to. Uh, but yeah, uh, I was, I'd been in special ops for about six years. I was a rescue specialist and, um, we actually put up B shift to go first, but something happened and then it turned around and went to A shift. So I say I was fortunate to go and people again, going back to that, well, how could you say you're fortunate to go? Well, I was fortunate to go because I got to do some stuff that I thought I'd never do. Uh, and actually stuff that I'm pretty proud of doing, you know, doing my part to dig through there, even though, you know, a lot of it wasn't for any, you know, we didn't find anybody or anything like that, but we did our efforts to, to do what we can do, yeah. kind of did our part. And you're talking about an emotional thing. That one, that one was one that stuck with me for a good year after I got back. Yeah, Every right. time I think about it, I got emotional and, and, uh, it was, it was tough to see it. Yeah. Um, but it was great experience. I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, the city of New York was awesome. They, they were so good to us and, uh, it was good to try and do your parts in something that made, will be history for a long, long time. Yeah. No, that's, I think one of the real valuable parts is when we were deployed for Harvey I remember, you know, my dad posting something on Facebook, you know, I'm so proud of my son, da, da, da. And I'm like, man, I'm just, I just want, I'm just glad to be a part of the, uh, part of the help, right? And that's, I think, part of what, you know, for me personally, when I think about being in the fire service, it's just, I, I, you know, we talk, we always just our job, right? But it's, it's, there's value that we get out of it, right? This opportunity to participate in this service to humanity and to our communities at large. And I think there's a huge value in that. Absolutely. It's good for us, but it's good for other people. I mean, it's good for us because deep down we know this is cool. Yeah. You know, and this is why we came here. Yeah. But it's good for the people who, you know, this isn't your chosen profession. They never wanted to be, but there's, it's good for them to know that there's people out there that will take care of them. Right. You know, you can watch TV and see these other countries. They throw people in the back of pickup trucks and, Take them somewhere, who knows, some hospital or whatever. But we actually, we do it the best way with the best care, the best equipment, um, even though there's there's risk involved and there's emotional, you know, ties to it. Um, it's good for everybody. Yeah. Um, because disasters and accidents and 
fires and stabbings and shootings, they're all going to happen. Right. It's just going to happen. So we're lucky that we have people there that'll take, that'll take part in it yeah. and, and help. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a rewarding profession in that regard. And I think mm-hmm. having the opportunity to be a part of, you know, the FEMA team and things like that, it's, it's just another level of the reward that you get from doing the job. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah, it's part of the payoff. I love it. The, uh, so, you know, you were involved with special ops for quite a while and, um, and you've made hazmat. I don't want to say it was your specialty, but I think I would say it's your specialty. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. It's kind you of know, your area of focus. The, the last part of my career, I, I focused a lot on hazardous materials, yeah. um, which I never thought I would have, but I really enjoyed it. It was very complex, which for someone like me, who's a high school graduate, um, I thought that's not a, Good mix. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't like this, but I did. And uh, I have to give a lot of credit to one of my bosses, uh, Chief Ray Kluchnik. Um, you know, he was he was my boss uh, just a little after I came in, and he pushed me a lot. Chief Jameson um, pushed me a lot. And uh, uh, I think that's, you know, where I got this jump start, and I just really enjoyed it. And it just, I don't know, it, I don't even know. I can't even tell you how it took off. It just took off. Yeah. You know, it yeah. just did. Um, I, Chief Kluchnik asked me about putting a little cheat guide together for just our department. Right. And uh, I thought, well, that'd be interesting and started doing that and uh, realized it was just too big of a thing to do on duty because it take too much of my time away from other stuff I needed to do. Right. So I told him I would do it, but I would do it off on my own. Right. You know? And he's like, perfect. And then. Came up with something that was right. pretty so, interesting. And so we're talking about the Hazmat Response Fog Book. And um, what's really cool about this is that the, I know there are other Hazmat Fogs out there, but this is my favorite one because it's got pretty colors. And uh, and, and, and in, in, in all sincerity, so I'm not a Hazmat guy. And when I open this up, I can follow it. And so when I, so, you know, speaking of, well, what did you say? I shouldn't like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've come to a point in my career. Um, I've got 22 years on the job now ish just under, and I, I realized like, man, I did all the fun stuff I wanted to do. Fought fire, became a paramedic, went to TRT and I never wanted to do hazmat. It always just kind of freaked me out a little bit, probably because I was intimidated by the, the academic component of it. Right. Like the, Correct. it was a little overwhelming to me, but now maybe I've just matured a little bit, but I'm at a point where I'm like, dude, I need to know more about hazmat. We show up on these calls and it freaks me out. And I think about, and I barely know anything. And I think, man, there's a lot of hazmat out here. So having been in the greater Phoenix area for quite some time, focused on hazmat, what what type of threat is really out there for us? Well, uh, the threats are, they're huge. Um, I used to wonder why, well, and I actually didn't wonder why, but I used to get headaches after I came out of fires. And I th- always thought my SCBA mask was too tight on my head. <laughs> That's, hey, I told you I was a high school graduate. Well, you have a smallish head too, so yeah. you're probably cranking that thing yeah. down. <laughs> well, it's come to find out that it's probably not from the SCBA at mask, but doing overhaul and breathing in the hydrogen cyanides and the uh, hydrogen chloride and, uh, you know, the carbon monoxide that's in there that gives you those effects yeah and it makes sense so on a on a very smaller level for guys that are out fighting fires 
we're dealing with stuff that's in, in these houses that really didn't deal with a lot before. Mm-hmm. Um, I always talk about, um, in, when I do hazmat classes, I get on a little soapbox and I talk about, yeah, we like when we buy this brand new, huge 72-inch TV and we take it out of its box and it smells good, it smells brand new, and, <laughs> and we put it on our wall and we think, that's awesome, until it starts burning. <laughs> but we know that it wasn't produced here, you know, it was produced somewhere else in another country, which have no regulations on what kind of chemicals they put in there. Mm-hmm. And when those things burn, they just, they give off all sorts of different stuff. So on a smaller level of talking about just the regular house fire, structure fire, whatever, you know, we've got threats in, in, in all the stuff that's, that's burning inside. Right. Yeah. And well, the, the fire context has changed dramatically. Dramatically. And I don't think it's anything people aren't aware of, except, you know, when you, when you prematurely take your mask off for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe to do overhaul or maybe to walk back through the building to find a right. tool or something and not cleaning your gear. I mean, we really are exposing ourselves to stuff that, uh, that's really dangerous to us. And I think yeah. we're really finding that out. Well, so speaking about house fires, I talked to Don Bolstead. I don't, I don't remember what episode it is, but it's back there. Don Bolstead. Um, and she's an industrial hygienist. Mm-hmm. You remember Don? I remember Don. And so we talked about like the formaldehydes and some of the other toxins that are, that are found in fires. And, and she's talking like, just the basic stuff, but there's way more things that are being un- unveiled, if you will, more and more every day. And that's, um, so the basic house fire is, is freaking scary. Um, just in the exposure sense and the, in the sense that you can't see any of this stuff and you think you're good to go. Cause there's no more fire. There's no more smoke. Everything's settled down and gone, but it's still present. Right. And that's when I think about hazmat, that's the part that scares me to death. Right. Cause so we mm-hmm. roll up on these hazmat calls and you may not know what's going on, right? You got a truck that's tipped over or you have a, a sick building and people are falling out of this building complaining of something mm-hmm. and we don't know what's going on. Exactly. And I think that's why it scares people on hazmat is they're, they're like, I'm not sure what to do on this. And I don't think they're alone with, you know, a lot of people feel that way. And I think that's why hazmat is so complex is because uh, there's so many different aspects of it. You know, we don't know... You know, this place that does plating and this place that does, you know, um, microchips or whatever, we don't know what their processes are. And we don't even sometimes know what, what's involved in there. So well, sometimes they're even like they think it's proprietary. <laughs> sometimes they say it's proprietary and so they won't even let us in the door, right? They're exactly. not going to share with us what they're doing. Exactly. Or there's the mom and pop places that just kind of fly under the radar mm-hmm. and they don't actually know what they have on site. So it's really. It's really kind of one of these unknown things, and people that's what people scares people. And then that's why when the hazmat team shows up, they go, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> and it's a little bit different. You know, I, I love special operations. I love rope rescue stuff, but a mid-face pickoff is a mid-face pickoff. But when you're going to a structure fire and it's got hazardous materials involved, it could be a lot of different things. It could be water reactive. You know, it could be, you know, a flammable that, you know, it's pyrophoric or... Uh, it could be, um, you know, a very toxic gas. Um, so th- that's why, you know, that's kind of why I made the guide is because, you know, at least it gives you a step in the right direction and it gives you the basics, you know, of where to start off at because we don't need to rush in and do anything. If, if obviously if we've gotten all clear, nobody's inside, but we see something go on, let's kind of step back, get our research material going and find out what's going on. That's 
probably why a lot of us like hazmat because it's you know it's kind of like this unknown and we it's kind of like uh all right what are the secret keys to this and it's kind of fun putting it together right but you have to know where you get your resources um you have to be you know familiar and confident with uh you know some of your decisions obviously um so again that's why the the guide is available to to help them right you know along the way right so let's say you're rolling up as a non-tech right i don't have your fog yet so it hasn't arrived and uh in the mail because I, you know, I just ordered it. So between mm-hmm. now and the time it arrives, what, um, you know, what are some key things that a first responder needs to take into consideration? Well, I think everybody knows kind of the area they work in. And, uh, a lot of times going up to a building, just the, the structure itself, you can look at something and go, yeah, that something weird's going on in there. I haven't visited this place yet. We don't know what they do, but they've got a lot of kind of funky things out back. So the structure might give a something away. When you say funky, you mean like weird you know, tanks and t- yeah, weird tanks, weird tanks in the back. You know, a lot of piping on the roof, perhaps. Um, looks like a manufacturing place, and then of course the NFPA seven hundred four diamond. When that's displayed, you know you have something, and it's everybody. I don't care whether you're hazardous materials tech or a six month new firefighter. You should know what an NFPA 704 diamond looks like and the characteristic of it. It's not that hard to figure out. It's on the first page of the book if if you need that. But you need to know that because if that's like the big sign for you, hey, right. this is what we have. Uh, you've, you've got your health, flammability, and reactivity, and then any special, you know, special characteristics with it that are right there, easily identifiable. And that's why they do it. So... Stuff like that, and then of course securing an RP is is really important. Um, obviously, something's going on. Somebody's probably going to be outside. Um, they're going to be waving you down, and hopefully, it's somebody that go, "Yeah, this is what's involved in it. This is what's going on." Occasionally, we get, "Yeah, we've got this. Not a big deal. You guys can turn around, go back." <laughs> but when you have some weird looking cloud that's orange and it's floating over the building. And they say, they hold up their hands and they say, no, you're, you're good. We've got this. It's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we have a responsibility. Right. Uh, so I think those are all signs that, uh, you know, you've got something going on. Yeah. You know, um, in we've your, had a... Oh, let me have, I got one go back for you. Yes. In your experience, how often do does the uh, RP try to wave you off? Uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. Um, and, and I get it. Um, they... You know, they've, we've had, we had a, a person that had a lot of things going on at their plant yeah. and they said, you know, every time we call the fire department, my neighbors get mad at me and it's like, I get it, <laughs> but you're having these accidents and he goes, yeah, but this one I can take care of because it was just like a compressor or something that went bad and we had everybody out there because we'd been out there before. And a lot of them, yeah, they, they don't like the, they don't like the advertisement right? and, and I do get it. Um, but I think we're good about uh, how we how we how we interact with that um, that RP and let them know, hey, we're here to help. Okay, we're not gonna we're gonna do what we ever, we need to do, but we're also gonna stay safe and we're gonna keep you guys safe. But there there is a lot of times where the RPs are very I like to call them slippery. Mm. They like to get away because they don't like to they don't have to be around to watch what's going on. Right. Well, I would think on one hand. There's potential for uh, OSHA violations and other kind of industry violations, I would imagine, right? And then there's 
Uh, I mean, on the other hand, you're disrupting their business, right? If they can get right. it, they can get it mopped up, quote unquote, in their own way. Right. Um, they can be done quicker, right? And and I don't know if everyone has this experience, but my experience with Hazmat is that those evolutions are very, very slow. Oh yeah. Right. By design, because we're trying to, we're slowing down the operation. Let's make sure we do our duck, get our ducks in a row before we start trying to mitigate before we hurt ourselves. Right. 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 In a lot of industries now, as a matter of fact, I train, uh, I go over to Texas several times a year to train emergency response technicians that work for industrial plants. And they're actually trained as what, whatever job they do in the plant they are an ERT on the side. Oh, so if the bell goes off, something happens, they respond, and they try and mitigate whatever's going on. And then the fire department, maybe a big city fire department, um, they have no idea what's going on. And usually they're happy about that because the ERTs that are within that plant take try to take care of what goes on. And they do probably 85 90% of the mitigation of that whatever's going on in that plant. Hmm. When they have the big one, that's when they ring the bell for the outside people to come in. Right. So, so yeah, there's a, it's getting a lot more to that where they have uh, people that train within their plant to take care of emergencies inside there. Yeah. Well, that's good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they, they, who knows better about the, more about the plant than themselves. But, but then right. again, um, they're, the only problem with that on the flip side is that that's not their main job. Right. And sometimes yeah. they're not... They may be not. They may not get a bump and pay to to be doing it, or they may get a small bump and pay to do it. But it's just not enough for them to be real proficient and real yeah. gung ho about what they're doing. Right. Yeah. I you know I imagine the the level of expertise is questionable, and that's what I would worry about. At the end of the day, you worry about it exposing the entire community, right? If it's contained within the walls of their small. You know, in the, contained within the walls of their shop, okay, but it's you know if they're a threat to the community at large, they need some support. So I think that yes, you know, so we talk about fire departments and hazmat teams having a degree of of skill and, and expertise and practice. That as a first responder without having hazmat skill set, you know, I so we tell you, my initial question too was, what am I supposed to do as a you know frontline fire truck that rolls up on this event? You know, evacuate, isolate, deny entry. That's kind of where I stop because that's all I got, right? So then it's, hey, where are my hazmat guys? Once I got that done, right? Well, if you think about it, I mean, just that alone is really good because if if you do something, if you do some sort of mitigation that that causes more of a problem. Then it looks it, like squirting water on something that I don't know, an unknown substance, perhaps, for example. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But uh, that's one of the things that I always tout is that uh, the, when the hazmat team is en route there, um, you want to make sure that they're not doing anything that's going to cause them injury. Because they, they're a lot of times we just do something to feel good mm-hmm. instead of doing the right thing. And, you know, sometimes doing the thing that feels good perhaps could be dangerous. So we don't want our first responders to get to where we have to rescue them, take care of them, and then deal with the problem. Right. I, I, I've had a lot of good experience with a lot of at least the Phoenix company or the Phoenix regional companies. Most of them, nearly all of them, did really well uh, as non-technicians responding to hazmat calls. And what's kind of neat about it is when they got done, they would come up and they say, you know, I've never been on this before. Did I do everything okay? And 
like 99% of the time, it's like, yeah, you did perfect. I said, a couple things you might want to think about in the future, this, this, and this, and they're like, perfect. So so give me that punch list. What are some things that a, a non-tech company should be should be doing to stay safe, should not be doing, that type of stuff? What's the What are some of the big five or whatever? Well, obviously, um, you know, our, our first thing that we always want to do is, is make sure everyone's safe, you know, the public. And occasionally, you know, you have to make go in to get people out. But if you're going to go in, you know, get yourself protected, you know, full, full protective gear. Um, again, like you're saying, you know, um, isolate, uh, evacuate, deny entry. Those are all three, three good things. Um, because once we have that established, then all we have is the structure and then we have to worry about that. But going in and doing stuff, um, when there's no, you know, rescue involved or any reason to be in the building and you're not really sure what's going on could put that fire company in a little dangerous situation it may be better just to back off start getting the information start talking to the responsible party start getting paperwork um, any SDSs anything like that that you can give to the hazmat team any information about what's going on um, that you can hand off now when the hazmat team gets there and they start building this incident can we use Fire companies, absolutely. You know, we may need a water supply. We may need a, a RIC team. Uh, we need we need hands to help set stuff up. Um, so we need them available for that as well. So there's a lot of things they can do. Basically, just don't get yourself to where you're in a position where you're a liability. Right. Right. Yeah, what's that? The rule of thumb, right? Keep the incident yeah. behind your thumb as behind you're staring your thumb. down. <laughs> yep. And, 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 you know, guiding... Uh, guiding trucks in and making sure they're coming they're not going to come through the cloud or they're not or they're not going to come through a bad access area those are all good things and and usually they're only going to be on scene well in our department they're only going to be on scene a short time before a hazmat company gets there but yeah. if you take a, a company that waits for a half hour 45 minutes for a hazmat company to show up you know some some areas are like that right um you know you feel like you should be doing something well, don't feel like you should be doing something if it's going to be something that's bad. Right. So. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, when it comes to, you know, the isolation and denial of entry, that's going to be a big job in itself. You know, you need, might need to coordinate with some law enforcement assets and things like that to, depending on how broad this is going to spread. And if there is a placard, start doing some research, right? Get it, was it the ERG guide out, mm-hmm. right? So get the ERG out and start doing some research and, and, try to identify what's going on a little bit, right? Start gathering some information. Seems like a reasonable thing to do too in the absence of some specific task level things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's plenty of stuff to do. Um, it's just a matter of uh, making sure that, you know, you're not doing anything that's going to get anybody in trouble. Right. And, and you know, obviously the deny entry is perfect because a lot of times people – they say that their purses in there, their car keys or something like that, and they really want to go back in. And they said, "Well, it's not even in the area I need to go." Right. And they want to be really convincing, and we can't really let that happen. Right. So um, that's a job in itself. Right. Right. What? Um. Where are some areas where you see people, well, technicians and firefighters, or sorry, and should say not firefighters, where you see technicians and non-technicians getting complacent? Oh. Uh, well, for technicians, um, the complacency to me is is, beca- is coming that they they're not doing anything. Uh, they're they're waiting for those calls to happen to get the experience instead of doing a little extra stuff on their own. And I don't think anybody gets enough hazmat calls to be just you know comfortable in everything they do. 
unless you're a dedicated hazmat unit. There's a couple of those across the country. Most are not. You know, most of them are dual. You know, they're they're fire, EMS, hazmat companies. Right. Um, you need to do a lot of extra work, um, uh, and that includes stuff on the on the on the side to to try and uh, increase your knowledge. You know, looking through books, looking through guides, and reminding yourself of of the equipment you have and how to use it and and stuff like that. And I think that's really important. I think we're getting away from that. And um, it's, you know, I used to see guys that would set up um, rope systems out in the back, TRT companies. Yeah. They'd set up rope systems and they'd, they'd go, hey, let's practice how to set up a, you know, five to one. But nobody goes out and sets up a decontent <laughs> or a decon line. Just doesn't happen. Right. You know? um, right. And you need to. Uh, you need to be proficient at what you do. And... Uh, uh, because we just don't get enough of it, especially here in the valley, we've got so many hazmat hazmat companies that guys are getting you know one call a month, one call every two months, three months, whatever. So right. they're not. And they may only see a small percentage of their whole skill set, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, for the for the uh, first responders, um, I, it's kind of hard to say because they don't get a lot of the hazmat. But I think I think the nice thing about it is when they know hazmat, they go. Oh boy, I you know this is a bad thing, and they're right. usually protected really well. Um, they've generally they've got their PPE on, um, SCBAs, um, maybe not a mask, but close to putting that on. But what I have seen, which um, I think we need to be a little more concerned about, is uh, our natural gas leaks. Um, guys get complacent about that because there's so many of them and we go on so many of them. And um, so, question, quick question about mm-hmm. that. Is that a phenomenon that's localized to the greater Phoenix area, or are, are natural gas leaks a phenomenon across the country? They're actually a phenomenon across the country. Okay. It's just a matter of um, how involved you get with them is what I'm finding out. Oh. Uh, a lot of times I go back east, and I ask the companies, what do they do? A lot of the companies, they show up, they make sure everyone's out of the house, and then they sit on the truck, and when the gas company shows up, they allow the gas company to work, and a lot of times, sometimes they'll leave. Mm. They won't provide any protection for them because it's just their the way they do things. Right, so that's their policies or SOPs. Right, and it's not that way here. Right, it's not that way in a lot of places. You know, a lot of t- a lot of places will actually go and mitigate. We will actually stop the gas for, from leaking, so we can, you know, not increase the the problem, but. Uh, getting back to um, complacency, I think that's a lot of times where we're getting complacent. Um, if you look at uh, natural gas leaks through one of the the websites, I mean, there's a natu- there's thousands of natural gas leaks that companies are responding to every day, and and that we get a lot of deaths uh, during the year from natural gas explosions um, for whatever reason. Right. And I think uh, I think the complacency on that is is heavy because we get so many of them, right. and getting half dressed for one is just not the appropriate tactic. Yeah. You have to be protected all the time. What are your thoughts on apparatus placement? I think it's important. Um, you know, um, we we talk about that in a lot of our CEs that uh, you you can place your apparatus maybe at a good spot, but if your engineer's at the pump panel and he's looking at the house that's filled with gas and he's working the pump panel, that may not have been a good placement. Right. Um, Cause they're just not, you're usually not protected, but they're away from scene, but 
debris can scatter. Right. So there's a lot of things that we could probably do maybe a little bit better, you know, uh, cautiously spotting, uh, spotting at an angle, uh, putting the pump panel away from where the structure is, kind of little things that might work out, pulling lines for structures that have, um, you know, maybe gas concentrations in them, but not getting guys standing five feet from the door if there's no reason to be there. Right. You've got an evacuated, you can back them up, have everything ready, but, you know, not not be part of the explosion. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, far enough out. Well, so this, uh, what's the, what's a good distance away from a basic... It's a hard question, right? Like that's, that's yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, you want to be close enough that your lines reach, um, but you don't want to be close enough to again to be part of the problem. And you know it, that that one's really hard to because you could have a gas leak that's at one house, but it's at it's also at three houses down. Migrated, yeah. Yeah, the, I think the important thing is 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 that that first arriving company, whether it's a hazardous materials company or not, um, if they find something out and uh, they're too close. They need to reposition yeah. quickly because that syndrome of everyone going to where that first truck is and then trying to turn everybody around and move your hot zone, expand it, move it back right. is it difficult. Right. So that's another thing that a first arriving company could find out. If they have one house, reported one house that has gas or something going on, and they find out it's actually three houses, well, they need to withdraw back. And have everybody come in cautiously. So that's another thing that first responders can do. Yeah. Yeah. To start defining the hot zone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I always tell first respond people is make it, make it as big as you think you need to make it. I yeah. don't care if it's, if it's huge, because when we come there, the hazmat team comes there, our job with the meters is to shrink it down to a reasonable size. If it stays the same, you made it perfect. But if it's too small and we, everyone's around there and we need to back everybody out that's what it becomes difficult. Right. So make it big. We'll make it smaller. Yeah. Start pessimistically, then meter your way in, right? Uh, like, uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Sniff your way in. That makes good sense because if you get in too close, you know, the repositioning is always bad, especially yeah. if you've committed any kind of hose lines. Then you're absolutely it always adds to the drama. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let me. So let's. So I know you just. So you just re-released. Let's dig in and talk about your fog a little bit. Okay. So you just re-released. Uh, will this be your second edition? Yeah, second edition. Oh, you got one for us? No. No. Just right in the box on the the floor. Let me see if I can reach. Nice. That's a dope cover, man. (laughs) I like it. That's cool. Well, yeah, it might be a little bit uh, contrast. We've got a a corrosive, but then we've got a fire background, but... It's just all the, the multi-dimensions. We'll see if anybody hazmat. catches it. <laughs> well, now that you just <laughs> talked about it, um, the uh, nobody would have noticed, but now you pointed it yes. out. Now, now I can't, now I can't yeah. not see it. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this: This when what is some of the big changes in the in the guide? Well, I, the, I've done some additions to the team responsibilities, some little things that I've kind of got through the years, um, but one of the biggest additions um in my opinion is is the rescue team for the level a entry okay. which was a concept of daryl wiseman and he graciously allowed me to put in the book um thank it's you daryl duly noted yes daryl thank you daryl is there and, a big picture of him in there no because oh I, good I, good you know what i couldn't get his head in here because um, <laughs> the guide is a little bit smaller 
Um, wanted to be pocket guide. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Daryl. But uh, I've got a big section on that, and that's been something that uh, that Daryl has been going across the nation talking about, and guys are really interested in it. And now that it's in the book, it makes it easier for them. Um, the problem we had with it is um, is it it can be very manpower heavy, hmm. and a lot of fire uh, hazmat companies were saying, "Hey, that's we don't have the manpower for that." And the key is you don't have to have the manpower. You just have to work around it because um, you can make the manpower. But the, you just need to know the concept. So um, I think that's a really important part of the book um, That's that I'm really glad it's in here. Uh, the other one I really like is um, I did a, uh, a piece on the hazardous materials portion of confined space. And, you know, when I got into technical rescue confined space was all trt mm-hmm. all rope rescue stuff we never even thought about why are those people down there and why are they unconscious right well there's a reason and now it's a lot more of hazmat than it is the rope rescue portion so there's a several pages in here about that which i really like because um it's going to give the hazmat team some directions on which way to go right and and really what a what a command officer or who's ever running the call, uh, you know, a technical uh, TRT uh, officer, they can just hand that off to the hazmat people while they're getting their rope stuff ready. They can get their hazmat portion done and make it safe for those people to go in, whether it's checking out, you know, the PPE they need to wear, um, you know, what toxin toxins are, are down there, uh, the meters they may need, uh, ventilation profiles, anything like that. So, um, that's what's that's what's neat about it. Here's your hazmat portion. You guys go take care of that. A mm-hmm. um, couple of cool things is um, I've got some extra decon in there. You know, we've evolved out of just a technical decon to spray decon and isolation decon. So steps for that is in there. And then I got some stuff on illicit drug labs, which is important, uh, you know, about fentanyl and carfentanil because um, we're running into a lot of those things. And, um, you know, first responders especially may not – no precursors for, you know, drugs, legal right. drugs. Uh, there's a list of them in there. So when they start looking at stuff that may be in a house, because they're there for some sort of medical emergency, not a not something that has to do with the drugs. Right. They can kind of get an idea. Right. Uh, plus a, a bunch of other things, but um, it's, so it was with, a fun revision. What I what I find interesting and in, is that when I look at this book, and, and I'm sure I'll find this in the new one as well. But the I feel like as a non technician, this is super handy. Um, and can gives you a great starting point, good, a great awareness. And, um, and it's not as, you know, not to bag on like the ERG or whatever, but it's not as complicated. That book's, you know, you gotta, you kind of got to know what you're looking for. And then you got to, you got to know the book in, intimately to be able to follow it. And yours has like color coded tabs so you can get into a section and you're like, okay, I know I'm in the rail car section. I'm in the team, you know, the team organization section. I know fogs are usually a little bit more general when it comes to like, the action items, the SOP piece of it, right? right. So are you, so when it, like you mentioned the um, procedure for um, uh, level A evacuation from level A suit, right? The what is the 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 where's the differential between kind of operating procedures and and hazmat hazmat procedures? Yeah, or kind hazmat of hazmat kind of procedures SOGs. or yeah, procedures or SOGs that are kind of general enough that they don't violate an SOP or whatever. Like they're not outside the boundaries of an SOP. Well, it's. It, that's kind of that's a really interesting 
concept because a lot of people call me up and they say they want SOPs for our natural gas response. Mm-hmm. We don't have any natural gas. We don't have any SOPs. We never did. I mean, we have certain things that would say uh, anywhere there's 10% LEL, um, start our hot zone. Basic. But, right. you know, that's basic stuff. Um, everything that's in this guide is is not an SOP and SOG. It's a suggestion. Like, take, for example, you're talking about the level of evacuation. There is no SOP, SOG that I'm aware of across the country for how you evacuate somebody from a level A environment. This is something that Daryl came up with. He had a vision, and he came up, and he did all the studying on it and, and came up finally with what's the best way to do this. Now, if you can come up with something better and put it into your SOPs or SOGs, that's fine. But this is what we've, what he's figured out is the best way to do it. So you can, you can actually look at this and go, yeah, these are good points. Well, this point right here, um, we can't accomplish that because, but it's not really. For whatever regional For whatever, for whatever reason, we can't do that, but it's not going to affect how we, how we take care of this, this problem. Right. Um, And I think that's the same you know, people think that this book is, this is how you run a hazmat call. It really isn't how you run a hazmat call. It's a suggestion. Um, if you take decon, for example, it just goes through bullet points of remember about this. Think about this. Um, they may go, that doesn't apply here. So they throw that one out. Or they look at it and they go, yeah, I probably should think about this. Um, one of my biggest things um, for checklist and one of the things that I talk a lot about is working times in hazardous materials, PPE, or CPC, chemical protective equipment. Um, I always like to establish that. A lot of people forget that. But you can take, you know this, um, how long are you going to let somebody work in a level A suit on top of a rail car? And the, t- the yeah. time the time to, to decide that is not when they're up there working. Right. The time to decide that is before they get in the suit and go. Right. It depends. It's dependent on weather. It's dependent on how far they are from the incident. Dependent on what tasks they have to do. Um, it's you know it's dependent on a lot of things. Um, and we that's one of the things that when Daryl and I were working together, we were like, hey, fifteen minute working time. It's August. It's one hundred and ten out. Fifteen minutes. You're going to take the equipment there. You're going to put it at the base, and basically you're done. We're going to get another team. Right. But the t- but that's just a suggestion in here. Um, if it's sixty degrees out, you may, it may not be a discussion. It may be we're going to call you and ask you how you're doing, and if you're good, we're going to let you go. But you can only go so long, you know, because you have an hour bottle. But at least we know. But that's the misconception about the book is that it's not how you run a hazmat call. It's all the suggestions. And again, like like you mentioned, first responders. Uh, I think the the motor and rail care section, I wanted to put actual pictures of uh, tankers in here. So people can go, this tanker that's on the side looks exactly like this tanker. And the tanker that he says in here carries all these types of materials. Right. And it could be any one of these, but at least we narrow it down to this. It's a corrosive. It's some sort of corrosive or whatever. So, um, you know, that's that's what I like. It's kind of like this hybrid thing. You know, not everything in here is for the first responders, um, but there is a lot in available here for them that's easy and quick to reference. And like you said, the ERG is great for for its purpose. It was a, it was made for the truckers. You know, first, you know, 
you know, 15 minutes of the incident. Uh, you can look up the UN number, or you can look up the name. And they do have a section for for looking at rail and motor carrier, but it's drawings. And drawings are good, but pictures are better, right. in my opinion. Right. And, you know, same with they have placards in there. Well, I have placards too. That's good for first responders. And they, but they go into depth, in depth on, on the placards for the first responders. So right. they get, they get, they know exactly what it is. Nice. The, um, I, I'm funny. I was flashing back to like my TRT fog and in it, it has a section on ice rescue mm-hmm. and I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. I will never do that. Yes. But what if I'm on a trip? <laughs> exactly. Right? I might travel back east in the wintertime and have to do an ice rescue. Um, you never know. Probably not. But but my point is is that it's when we talk about a fog guide, right? It's to get you it's for the technician who's already trained, it's to prompt you. And for the first responder who doesn't, it's to give you a clue. Um and, exactly. and so you have an idea while you're waiting. Uh, on your hazmat component, if you have one coming, uh, while you're in that position, well, what what might I do? Oh, I need to remember to evacuate nicely. Did I entry like if that stuff you know it doesn't come to you right away? It's just an added resource. And then you know the other thing is you talked about studying, uh, you know, and you talked about you know belaying the uh, complacency through study. Well, what better thing to have in your pocket? in a book like this that you can flip open and I'm going to read a couple pages. And that's what I love about it. It's when I was making fun of how bright colored it was and whatever. And I'm making fun. I'm just like, right. it just tickles my yeah. my capacity. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, that's what I'm talking about right there. It makes Pretty, it fun to read. Some cool pictures. And it makes it bite-sized, right? So I can right. look at this and go, oh, okay, I'm going to read a, a little section here on, on white powder substances. And now I walk away just a little bit tuned up on that thing and that element or whatever. So I think it's fantastic. And, well, thank um, you. Well, so, you, know, you know, a first responder can be a real hero if he says on the radio that he's got a 406 that's on its side and it's leaking from one of the dome covers. Right. Uh, Think of the, yeah. You'd be going, whoa. Uh, yeah. Who's that guy? That's pretty good. <laughs> Who's that guy? And he and you show up and he's reading it off the book. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, you know, we talk about one of the most important things we do is communication, right, in the fire service. Right. And, and that first in company, when, they, when they're gathering intel and they can provide that good communication to all the responding units, that's a big deal. It is. It is. It gets everyone mentally prepared. Yeah. And it starts that process. Yeah. And uh, that's why, you know, Bruno was so uh, innovative with that, you know, explaining what, what, what we have and then directing companies to come in. It's, it's really important. Uh, that, that first uh, company has a lot on their plate. And, you know, we, we do everything we can to make it easier for them. And, you know, it's just another thing. Right on. Well, Jeff, I, I really appreciate that you have made this part of your life's work. It's a tremendous asset to, to any, any would-be hazmat responder, uh, whether you're a tech or not. Uh, what a great resource to have available. And um, I just thank you for doing it. And, and thank you for sitting down and, and talking about yourself and talking about hazmat and, and how we can all be a little bit better at what we're doing. It's an important conversation. So, Well, it's my, been my pleasure. I, I appreciate the offer and uh, always glad to talk hazmat. It's a... Uh... One of my passions is fun, and uh, I, I thank you. Right on. Well, hey, so let me ask you this. If somebody wants to get their hands on the new edition, um, how would they How would they source it? Where are they going to find you, or where are they going to find that uh, purchase I'm, place? Yeah, I'm actually on a lot of places. Uh, I do have a website, um, Um You can order from there. Also, the, I just redid the website, so it's got a lot of new content. 
Um, it's got a lot of pictures on it, which is fun to go through. It's always fun to go through pictures. Um, tells about the guide, and uh, I have some blog stuff on there as well. Uh, kind of old, but uh, I'm, I'm looking to improve that. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Hazmat Response, um, on, Fo- on Twitter at uh, Hazmat Fog, and Instagram. And not really sure my Instagram handle can't remember right I, I now. will look it up and post it in the show notes <laughs> sure and then uh and of course anybody can contact me uh email call me I, I do get a lot of people that uh that that call up for information for whatever reason and I'm happy to share any information I can um and uh, a little more accessible now that uh yeah, you got all kinds retired. of time on your hands yeah yeah <laughs> so I love sharing the information and I'm at I'm at a bunch of conferences this year conference season is starting uh, in a couple of weeks, so I'll be traveling. Where are you going to be at? I am going to be um, in the first one is in Upper Michigan. I can't remember the the city. Um, it's I can't even remember the conference. I off to off to look. It's on my website. Um, and then after that, I'll be in Chicago for the Midwest conference. Uh, I'll be in Baltimore for that's the big. Hazmat conference. Uh, be in Houston. Uh, looking to go to hopefully be going to um, Ontario, um, Niagara. Oh, fun! Not Ontario, Niagara, and then probably uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So, and then yeah, whatever yeah. comes up in between. When do you when do you have time for retirement? <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice thing is, you know, when you go to these conferences, I can take my wife. So we there can make a little go. There you go. travel there the deal of it, and and I only usually speak for between ninety minutes and three hours, so it's a it's a nice short little thing. Get nice. out the message and and you know move on. Nice, excellent. Well, hey, safe travels, and awesome. uh, and thanks again, man. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that's all we have for today. Thank you, Jeff Zintek, for uh, your wisdom and your knowledge. Appreciate you taking the time to share with us and. If you are looking for more information uh, from Ziggy, you can find him at hazmatresponseguide.com. He's also on Twitter and Instagram. His handles are all over the place. So his Twitter handle is Jeff Syntech at hazmatfog. And on IG, he is hazmat underscore response. Look for his book there. You'll find it. It's great stuff. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, Get on to whatever platform you enjoy listening, subscribe, and this podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Additionally, appreciate your feedback. Feel free to email me. Feel free to get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate the podcast, leave a review. Appreciate your feedback, whether you're loving it, whether you're hating it. Either way, I can make adjustments based on whatever it is you have to say. So thanks for tuning in. Keep on finding ways to make yourself more successful, more effective. Get out there. Read that hazmat response guide. Get the knowledge into your head so that you can make effective decisions during high-risk, low-frequency operations. Very, very important that you have this capacity built into you. Now go on out there and get some.